Well, I'm happy to be back with you this morning, and I'm happy to be back in 1 Corinthians with you. And it's amazing that we are already 10 or 11 weeks into our study through 1 Corinthians. That's quite a bit of time already, isn't it? And we're in chapter 3. There's a few chapters to go, so we'll probably be here a while. Uh, But this morning, our text, if you want to just turn there with me, is in chapter 3. And we're going to look specifically at verses 18 through 23 together today. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. And before I read the text, I'd like for us just to, for a moment, take a step back. And I'll just share with you, you know, I've been on vacation for two weeks. And uh, it's been a great time off and time to give my thoughts a little bit of a rest and reset, which is wonderful. And one of the things that I was considering that we should do together is make sure that we all understand together and gain proper perspective on what it is that we're doing and why we're talking about the things that we're talking about and why we talk about the Word of God so often and... uh, just really, what is, what is the whole big picture? That's really the question. And how does our detailed study of 1 Corinthians together on Sunday mornings fit in to that big picture? Okay, so that's really the question. I want to answer that uh, by something I've put together here for you on the screen. There is, let's just be mindful, that there is one big story. There are not many stories working themselves out right now. There is one big story working itself right now. And it's not as though the end of this story is not written. The end of the story, in fact, is written. The beginning of the story is written. The end of the story is written. But it is all one big story, and of that we are absolutely sure. And where we find this story is in our scriptures. And whether you can see it or not, um, we have for you all of the scriptures on display. And... That's all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament. And in all of the Old Testament and all the New Testament, this one big story is found. Now, as we're reading through Scripture, we have lots of stories, don't we, that we read. But please do not lose sight of the fact that there is one big story playing itself out. And each of these component parts are just that, parts of the big story. And if we narrow in too much on a small piece, we kind of, we could potentially lose sight of the fact that it is part of the big story. And what we should also do is make sure we know how this little piece plays into the big story. Okay? That makes sense what I'm saying? Okay, so in this big story, um, there's a central message. And if I could summarize that central message, it's this, that there is the work of God and Jesus Christ to save his people from sin and death. Now, from the beginning, when God created all things, to the very end of the story, when he comes back in glory and brings us into glory, that is the story of creation to new creation, there is one story working itself out. And that story is this, the work of God in Jesus Christ to save his people from sin and death. Now, we keep that in mind as we read the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so forth. Okay, we keep this idea in mind as we read all of the scriptures that there is one story. And so do you know, and are you mindful of the fact 
that there is one story that has a common thread running through it. And of course, that is the story of Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament and the New Testament do what? They point to the cross, right? Be mindful of that reality. Have you gotten lost before not being mindful of this reality? I think we all have. So the Old Testament points forward to the cross because it hasn't happened yet. The New Testament points backward at the cross because it had already happened, right? But both our Old Testament and New Testament are pointing at the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there is promise foretold, or we might say salvation promised. And then in the New Testament, we have salvation realized, right? In the Old Testament, we have salvation promised. In the New Testament, we have salvation realized. Is all this making sense? Is this new information to you? Maybe we've got out of, I've been gone for two weeks. Maybe we've gotten out of practice of how to appropriately do this thing that we're doing right here. Okay? It's only been two weeks. All right? I talk, you guys listen, and then you give me some kind of acknowledgement that you're listening. That's how this works. Okay? So, you all with me? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, all right, good. Well, I didn't know. How am I supposed to know if you don't make some kind of indication? Right? All right. I can see you if you didn't know that. I see you. You see me. The lights are on. Okay? I see you. Okay, so you hear me, right? All right. So all of the scriptures point toward the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's important that we never lose sight of that reality. It's very important that we never lose sight of this reality. And when we read the scriptures, then we, we ask two questions. It leads us to ask two questions. Okay, and the two questions are this. Number one, who is Jesus then and what is the gospel? Because... In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's talking about Jesus, it's talking about the gospel. So as we read any portion of the scriptures, it's going to relate to us in some way or another who Jesus is and what the gospel is all about. So we ask those two basic questions. And then number two, how are God's people to live in light of the gospel? And we always ask this question. If we never ask the second question, that proves that there is a heart disconnect from the scriptures. Okay? If we never ask, how then should I live in light of all I'm learning? It proves that you are in this for the knowledge only and not for a heart change. And as we're going to read today, heart change is what it's all about. Now, can you get heart change without the knowledge sinking in? No, because we don't know how to conform our hearts. We don't know what the truth is. So we must have the knowledge, yes, but we must have the knowledge with the goal that our heart and our lives would be changed and conformed to the image of the cross. We must set our eyes on Jesus and never lose sight of him, right? So we need to be careful that there's not a disconnect between our gaining knowledge and our hearts aligning with that knowledge, okay? So how does our study of 1 Corinthians fit into this one big story? So this is a letter. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul several decades after Jesus walked the earth. Now, Jesus was an apostle, meaning that he was taught by Jesus himself. Now, what's interesting about Paul's apostleship is that he was taught by Jesus himself in his resurrected state after he had died and rose from the dead. That's pretty amazing. This guy who was taught by the resurrected Lord has now established churches all throughout this area, the Roman Empire. And one of the churches that he established was in the city of Corinth. 
And as he established that church and then he went on his journeys, he is now thinking about them, hearing reports of how they're doing, and he wants to write a letter to that church to make sure they understand who Jesus is, what the gospel is all about, and how God's people are to live their lives in relationship to that gospel message. The very questions that we were just talking about, right? So what are we to do with our study in 1 Corinthians? We are to ask the same questions and make sure we understand them on deeper and deeper level, right? Who is Jesus? And you say, well, I know who Jesus is. Now, you could also say that about me. I could say, do you know who I am? And you could say, yes, but don't you know that all of you mean that on a different level? My wife knows me better than anyone in the room, and she would also answer, yes, I know him. But she knows me on a deeper level, doesn't she? So knowing Jesus is not a one-shot thing. You either know him or you don't. Well, that's true, but how much do you know him? How are, to you, or how are you to know more of him in his word that he has given us? Right? So in saying, do you know Jesus and how do you know him? What do you know of him? Is a very complicated question. Don't think and fool yourself that you know the answer to that. I know Jesus. I'm done with that. I know who Jesus is. We are always learning more of who he is. We are always learning more of what the gospel is and how it transforms our lives and how we are to live in light of that gospel message. Always. And if we stop asking that question, we have a big problem, like I said. Never stop asking the question, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? And how am I now to live my life in light of that message? So that's what we do as we study 1 Corinthians together as well, isn't it? So what are we going to see specifically in our passage together this morning? Well, we're going to see several things. In this passage, we're going to receive some warnings. That is, what not to believe, what not to think, how not to act. Those are warnings. We're going to receive directions, how to think, how to act, right? We're going to hear quotes from the Old Testament. And all, all of this in our passage this morning, we're using a few verses. We're going to hear quotes from the Old Testament. Why quotes from the Old Testament? Because in the Old Testament, what story was unfolding? the same story that's unfolding in the book of 1 Corinthians. So Paul can relate us back to the Old Testament because it's the same story as being told in the New Testament, right? We will have details on the gospel clarified for us. And what should this produce then? A people who ask the question, now that all this information has been given to us, what do I do with that information? I ask, how should I now live my life with all that we have learned together today. Now that I understand Jesus better, I understand some clarity of the gospel message better, how should this affect my life today? So if you leave today not asking the question, what have I learned more about Jesus and the gospel? And how should I live my life differently? Then you've missed the whole point. Okay? So now I would like to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, And our text for this morning is verses 18 through 23. Let's look at it together. So don't lose sight of the big picture, okay? Now, do we we spend time looking at the details? You know, we zoom in and we look at some details, but please always zoom back out so that you understand that piece better so that the whole picture makes more sense now. That's the idea, okay? All right, so let's look. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. 
For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and they are futile. So let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Okay, so how is our text just looking at it? How is it divided up by Paul himself? You can go ahead and put that next one up there if you would, Rob. Here's how the text is divided up just as we read it, okay? There are three imperatives, three imperatives that we find. Do not deceive yourself. Do become a fool. Those are two imperatives. And then a third, do not boast in men. Do you see all three of those together with me? We have also explanations. So two imperatives. One is negative and the other is positive. Do not deceive yourself. Do become a fool. Okay? And here's the explanation. Why? Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Okay? Understood. Next imperative. Do not boast in men. Okay, why? Explanation? Because all things are yours, of course. So, what we're going to spend our time doing this morning is unpacking and explaining what Paul means by these words. And as we do, we're going to group them together in two ways. So, number one, we're going to look at the positive and negative um, imperatives together because there's one explanation. And then we're going to look at the second imperative because there's one explanation following it. So, there's two main ideas in this text. And so, we're going to look at those two main ideas separately and see how they work together. Okay? That's our plan for this morning. So, number one, I'll summarize this point by saying this. God wants his people to be humble. This, in its simplest form, that is what Paul is saying with this first set of imperatives. One positive, one negative. Right? He's saying God wants his people to be humble. How is he saying that? Well, let's look at it. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Who do you think Paul's referring to here? Because we have in mind the church. We have those who have preached the gospel message to that church, which is Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. And then we have those who are claiming certain groups. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and so there are groups among them, divisions, factions. So who is it that Paul is referring to here in this passage when he says specifically, let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks he is wise? Who does he think is thinking of himself as a wise person? If any of you thinks you're wise... You better become a fool in order that you might become wise. Who is he talking about? All of them or a specific group? It's important that we ask questions like that because it changes how we apply this reality. I think there's a strong connection between those who think they're wise in this age and the arrogant ones among them that Paul will soon confront. And you see that. Just look with your eyes just for a second. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the next chapter, 
in verses 18 through 20. Look at it real quick. Chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You see that? You see that group of people there? There are some arrogant people who are talking nonsense, nonsense to Paul that they think is wisdom. So he is saying, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, he's talking about these arrogant people that are claiming things that they don't really know what they're doing. They don't know what they're claiming. You ever claimed something confidently and you knew that you had no idea what you were talking about? It's okay to admit that in this moment. I have claimed things confidently that I had no idea. I knew that I didn't know what I was talking about, and yet I, I said it with confidence, right? Normally it has to do with my children asking me bizarre questions, trying to contradict my authority in the situation, <laughs> right? Of course that's how that works, you know? I don't, I, don't, I don't actually know, I don't know. But you know what? We do that in more serious matters, don't we? We make confident assertions of things thinking we have wisdom, but in reality, we don't know what we're talking about. And there's danger in that, isn't there? It's a very dangerous situation to make confident assertions thinking that you're correct when you're not. Possibly more dangerous than knowing that you're wrong is not even knowing that you're wrong. You make a confident assertion of something and you think that it's right and you don't even know that you're wrong. You don't even know. You don't know all the different ways that people thought about that thing. You didn't even know there was a different way to think about that thing. You don't even know what you don't know. And you don't know what you don't know until you start to know more and then you realize how much you don't know. You don't even know what you don't know. And that's how it always is. So God is saying to these people who are arrogant, don't deceive yourself. If you think you're wise, become a fool. It's in the imperative. Become a fool. If you think you're wise, become a fool. Now, is there also a general application of this for anyone who might think that they're wise? Do you think so? I think so too. Obviously, it's a principle, isn't it? If anyone thinks they're wise, become a fool. Anyone? Anyone. If anyone thinks they're wise, become a fool. You ever thought you were wise? Yeah, I know. Me too. That's part of the reality of the human nature. If anyone thinks they are wise, you need to become a fool. If there is any point in time where you think you are wise, the instructions laid upon you in the scriptures are this. Become a fool. If you find yourself thinking that you are wise, your Lord tells you, you need to become a fool right now in order that you might become wise. Because if you think you're wise, you have just proven that you are not. There is something, I'm going to say something. I just want to know if anyone knows what I'm talking about. Does anyone know what I mean by cage stage? Anyone in the room? Where's Sam? No? Out there. He, he might know. Okay, so this is, I'm, I'm glad. Let me, let me tell you what this is. 
This is the idea that when someone comes to understand the truth of God revealed in his word, as has been understood historically within Reformed theology, they enter what is known as the cage stage. And what this means is, it would be better if someone locked you in a cage at this stage than for you to go around saying things that you don't actually know. That's what that means. You have just learned the sovereignty of God. You have just learned that God is sovereign over all things, and this has blown your mind. Someone needs to lock you in a cage right now because you are about to start saying things that you have no idea what you're talking about. And what it does is it begins to actually burn bridges and do harm, and that's why you need to be locked away. Actually, I'll, I'll quote here from Tim Chalice. Okay, listen to what he says. A rubble of relationships because of how we handle reformed theology is a dead giveaway of a stage cage tendency. That is, you are getting in theological arguments primarily about the sovereignty of God or whatever truth it is that you have just recently discovered in the scriptures. You've recently discovered and you are so absolutely convinced of it, you are willing to burn down bridges because of it and make rubble. Would you say that this is dangerous? Would you also say, for some of you in the room, would you just confirm that you understand what I mean by what I just said? Yes. Uh, have you ever been in the cage stage? It would have been better if you were locked in a cage. Yeah? Because I don't actually know what it is I'm talking about, but I feel very confident about it. And I want to tell people about it, and I also want to tell people how wrong they are, right? Because they don't understand it the way that I understand it, right? And uh, so there's trouble all over the place. Gaining insight and knowledge can, in a sense, become a platform and an opportunity to elevate yourself above other people. Because what has happened is you have come to understand something, what you believe to be in a superior way, and now you want to go and flaunt your superiority of theological knowledge in front of other people and put them down so that they might see how wise you are and how theologically adept you are, right? It's like, oh, you have so much theological knowledge. Wow, great. And it makes you feel good. What? Right? Makes you feel good. The easiest place to find a super condensed population of these types of people is on the seminary campus. I can confirm that with absolute certainty. And why is that? Or the Bible college campus, what, what have you. Why is that? Because people begin studying the Bible at a super serious condensed rate, and they all of a sudden become to, they come to see things in a clearer way than they, they never have before, right? All of a sudden, they start to see how all these pieces fit together. They start to learn, learn big theological words. Great, I'm going to go home to my home church, and I'm going to tell them about these big theological words, knowing they don't know what they mean. And I'm going to feel good about myself for all the theological knowledge I have just been given. Or it could be those who spend too much time watching theological YouTube videos or listening to theology podcasts. That possibly for many of you hits more home, is that you hear people talking about theology in such a way that they are confident in making bold assertions of things. You then pick up on their bold assertions and you make those bold assertions the same way they do, but you don't understand it the way that they do, possibly. Possibly they don't understand it the way that they think they do. But you make bold assertions 
you become confident, and you think you have arrived at wisdom. Should that be you, you need to become a fool in order that you might become wise. You need to recognize that you don't understand as you should understand. This is where we all should be. I don't understand the way I should understand, but thanks be to God for the understanding I do have. It is only by his grace that I understand the little minuscule amount that I do understand. And I praise God for that little minuscule amount. And I want people to know that. And I want them to trust in him and to go to his word. Right? That is why rather than going to people and books and materials and all these kind of things primarily, where you should be investing your time is in the word of God. Go to God primarily in his word rather than to people. That's going to become even more clear as he says specifically, do not boast in men. Right? That's what's in our text. If your knowledge puffs you up in arrogance, this is in direct opposition of who God wants you to be in Christ. Because why? Because God wants a humble people not a proud people, not an arrogant people, not a puffed up people. That, isn't that imagery great, by the way? Someone who's puffed up, you know, walking around, you know. I, you know, whether you do it with your words or look in your face or physically, right? I know more than you do, and that makes me better than you. Bow down before me, right? Or you should. I'm put you in your place. And so this is very dangerous. Now, I hope you pick up on the fact that I exaggerate the end of this, that you might find your place in all of these things. Because even though some take this to an extreme measure, what measure do you take this to? Because I would have to argue with you that you at least are tempted, if not possibly in the midst of doing it, to boast in your own wisdom. Right? 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. So if I'm in 1 Corinthians, that means I'm in the same letter that we're currently studying. And that means that it's relevant. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. I don't know that we know. If anyone imagines, thinks, that he knows something, that is, thinks he is wise, he does not yet know as he ought to know. It's the same thing as saying, if anyone thinks he's wise, he needs to become a fool in order that he might be wise. If you think you know, you do not yet know as you ought to know. If you think you are wise, you need to become a fool that you might be on the path to wisdom. In other words, we need to not be arrogant and puffed up thinking we know, but yet we should be humbled before our God, seeking to know more, right? Do you see how this is a heart issue? Wouldn't you know it? Doesn't it always seem to come back to a heart issue? Pride, arrogance. This was a heart issue for the people in Corinth. And it is a heart issue for us as well. To some one degree, to some another. But we need to hear the warnings here. 
and be careful that we are not prideful in our knowledge and puffed up thinking that we know something. Because if we imagine that we know, we do not yet know as we ought to know. Right? So instead, the Corinthians had to learn, and we need to learn, that wisdom from God is received by those with humble hearts. True wisdom from God is received with humble hearts, and so knowledge, specifically theological knowledge, is not for personal gain, advantage, or self-promotion, is it? God does not want people to grow in knowledge so as to beat other people down or build yourself up, but our knowledge ought to lead more toward what? Love. So if you think you know, and yet your knowledge causes you to act mean, you don't know. If you knew, your knowledge would press you into love and to say, I don't know anything. But if you think you know, and you act in a way that is ungodly, you don't know. You don't have wisdom, however much you say you do. Your actions prove to me that you do not. Your disposition, your words, your character prove to me, however much your mind might retain information, good for you, your character proves to me that you do not have wisdom. So says scripture. So, Paul is giving us two imperatives, one positive, one negative. Don't deceive yourself and become a fool. And then he quotes two Old Testament passages to prove his point. The first one he quotes is Job 5.13. He says, for it says, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Do you see that in your text? He is quoting from Job chapter 5 verse 13. So Job is telling the same story. Yeah, Job is telling the same story. It says in Job, the full verse, he catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. And so I thought of the wilies. I'm sorry. Your end is near. Yeah, no. <laughs> he catches the wise in their own craftiness. What does this mean? He catches them in the schemes the wily are brought. Do you know what a, a wily person is? Someone skilled at gaining advantage. That's what a wily person is. Someone skilled at gaining advantage. I think I know people like that. You know how to gain an advantage on a situation. You're skilled at it. That's a wily person. It's the same thing as the crafty. We get how those go together, right? It takes craftiness to be able to do that. And these are all negative connotations. Those who are clever and wise and cunning are overthrown by God when and where in the midst of their pursuit of their own craftiness. As they are pursuing craftiness, they are overthrown by God. And this is actually one of the complaints David had with God, isn't it? Because he saw the crafty being crafty and they were getting away with their craftiness. And David said, when are you going to destroy them already? Didn't he say that actually a lot? He did. If you're familiar with the Psalms, David had a big problem with these types of people who thought they were wise, thought they were powerful, and they were getting away with all these different things. And what David wanted was for God to go ahead and do what he was going to do already. Now, we are not in charge of God's timing. 
When does God catch them in their schemes and their craftiness? We don't know. That's not for us to know. But what we do know is that God will find them out and overthrow them. You may not see it with your own eyes, even though you might want to. David wanted to see it as well, didn't he? So we trust in God and his timing of that. What we want most of all is that those who are scheming and crafty might have a heart that gets cut by the knowledge of the gospel and they see their own craftiness and they repent of it. That's what we desire. But there's a real sense of irony here as he quotes from Job chapter 5. And here's the reason. This is very interesting. If you go and you look at who said this, you know, have you all seen, it's like this meme that says, I will give you all these kingdoms or whatever it says. And it's, it's like this little, it's this little uh, verse of the day calendar that sits on your desk and it's supposed to be real encouraging and everything. And it's a quote from Satan. And the people making the calendar didn't know that. <laughs> Who said something matters, right? Uh, so anyway, uh, who said this in Job? It's a real sense of irony because the words are quoted from Job's friend, Elipaz, who God later condemns for his lack of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? So this friend of Job, Elipaz, says that God catches the crafty in their craftiness, and later on, he is caught by God in his craftiness, but what he said turns out to be true. Yeah, wrestle with that for a little bit. But that's what's happening here. It's a bit of irony. But Paul quotes it, so we know it to be true in its positive sense, right? It is true. This is what God does. So Paul helps us to understand. Those who would pursue wisdom for wisdom's sake, for personal advantage, will be brought down by God in the midst of their pursuits. That's what this means. And he proves it from the Old Testament. And he does it with another one. Psalm 94.11, that's the next quote that Paul gives us. And the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. Now, if we go and we look up Psalm 94.11, it says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, and that they are but a breath. Now, the way Paul actually quotes this is somewhat different, isn't it? But that's okay. It means the same thing. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. As Paul said earlier in the text, the world does not come to know God through wisdom. So the thoughts of man, earthly wisdom, will not lead you to godly wisdom. Earthly wisdom will not lead you to godly wisdom. Right? Say that again. Earthly wisdom will not lead you to godly wisdom. And this is confirmed over and over in the book of 1 Corinthians for us so far. In fact, the thoughts of man are like a breath. How long does your breath last in the air? It comes to nothing. That's the thought of a man. God's thoughts are far greater than this. The words and the thoughts of God, well, they are forever. And they are perfect. And they last. The thoughts of man are not so. So it is a self-deception to believe that you are wise. And we see here, don't be, don't be self-deceived. That is a self-deception. If you think you're wise, knowledgeable, I need to share with the world how knowledgeable I am. I need to prove how wrong you are. Then the scriptures have a problem with your heart. All right? I hope you see that. 
The scriptures have a problem with your heart, not with your knowledge. But in your pursuit of knowledge, you've become a fool. But God wants you to become a fool in an entirely different sense. We become fools in the sense that we consider ourselves as fools according to the wisdom of God. We need to recognize that the wisdom of God is this much, and we have this much of it. So if I were to say, how much of the wisdom of God do you have? I'm foolish in the wisdom of God. I don't know nearly as much of the wisdom of God as I should know. So I'm a fool. Consider yourself a fool. Do not consider yourself wise because the wise are the arrogant, the puffed up ones. And God desires a humble people. So if you think yourself as wise, then you have proven yourself to be a fool and you deceive yourself. If you have thinking of your, if you've thought thinking, see? If you've done been thinking about yourself as a fool, then if you think of yourself as foolish, then actually you've stepped onto the path of wisdom. And this is where we should be. I want to read one passage before we, before we get to the, the second uh, main idea here in the text. I just want you to be, again, mindful of this passage. I know it's one you know because we spent time on it, but I wonder if you would just look at it with me just for a second. Let's just remind ourselves of a great truth. Don't we need to be reminded? Philippians chapter 2. Would you look there just for a second with me? Philippians 2 verses 1 through 8. Is it true that God wants a humble people? Is it true that God wants his people to be humble? And if humble, humble in what way? Humble to what extent? And is it something that we should pursue at all cost? How does this look? How do we relate to one another if we truly are humble? All these questions are very relevant questions. Philippians chapter 2 puts everything in perspective. It says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. In verse 3, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he, Christ, was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. To what extent should we humble ourselves? to the extent that we mirror the humility of Christ. And how far did his humility take him? To a cross. A giving up of himself. He considered himself a servant, didn't he? So, that is humility. Having a servant mentality. I am here to give of myself to God and to his people right? I'm here with a servant mentality. I am not here for my sake. Because if you are here for your sake and you say, well, I didn't get anything out of that this morning. So you were here for you? Is that why you were here? 
to serve yourself in your own thirst for knowledge? That's why you came? The scriptures have a problem with that. Remember what worship is. I know I've been saying this, but I've been gone for two weeks. Remember, worship is giving worth and value to God. Worship is giving, not getting. So if you are here to worship, you are here to give, not receive. Now, if we are all here to give, though, what will you naturally, what will happen to you? You will receive. But motivations matter. Motivations matter. If we could say all of this in maybe a more succinct way, Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. And it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you hear that? That's Proverbs 3, verses 7 and 8. Okay, let's go on to our next main idea here, which is verses 21 through 23. So let's just read that together. So, I think a better translation of so is therefore. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For, reason being, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. Now just wait a second. He's saying, don't boast in men. And the reason you should not boast in men is because all things are yours. If all things were mine, all things, all things, that would seemingly give me more reason to boast and not less. Right? I have all things. What do you have? Well, if we are all common in our salvation, then we all have all things. You have nothing more than what I have, actually. We all have the same. And actually, the things that we have don't even belong to us, really, because we belong to another. We belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. In what sense? It's actually remarkably similar to another passage that Paul wrote to the Romans, and we're going to compare that with our text this morning, because when we do, I, I feel like uh, my great explanation, or by great, I mean long explanation, uh, I think is better done just by comparing the thought with Paul's other thought in the book of Romans. And so let's just look at this passage in Romans. And as we do, I want to compare the idea, because I think it just brings us into a better understanding of what's really being said. So Romans chapter 8, look at it with me. Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. I know I have something on the screen. That's okay. We're going to actually look at our scriptures, though, as well. So turn there with me. Romans 8, verses 28 through 39. I'm going to read this. And as I do, I want you to think about what Paul might mean when he says, All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present or the future, all things are yours. What might that mean? And of what relevance is that to us being a humble people? That's the question. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things is important, all things work together for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but he gave, us up for him, uh, he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see that? That, that verse right there is important. If he gave up his own son for us, how will he not also then graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution? What about famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, here it is, ready? For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Jesus our Lord. Now, this is perfectly relevant to what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 3. Not only is it written by Paul, but there is a symmetry in a sense of the language used and the concepts being spoken of. And so that's what I have on the screen. If you compare verse 22 with Romans 8, 38 and 39, these are the similar phrases that we find. Now, he says Apollos, Paul, and Cephas in 1 Corinthians, but in Romans 8, he says angels, rulers, and powers. Now, what's the idea behind this one? Those with authority or perceived authority. The world, and in Romans, it says anything in all creation, height or depth. That's the world. That's all of it. Life or death, death or death nor life. Things present, things in the future, things present or things to come. Do you see how similar this list of things is? And he's talking about all things. He who gave us his own son, will he not graciously then give us all things? Now, come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm just going to read for you what my theological summary of that passage from Romans is. That because the believer is, is God's in Christ, all things are under his sovereign control. That's why he says, you know, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So because the believer is God's in Christ, all things under his sovereign control, God uses all things for the believer's good. Using all things to conform the believer to the image of Christ, and that is their good, right? That's a commonly misapplied passage. All things work together for your good. Really, I don't see how this was good. Well, good means specifically that you become more like Christ. That's how God is defining good. That's important to understand. Conforming then to the image of Christ. And it is in this way that believers are victorious over what? All things. Because all things work together for your good in Christ Jesus. So you have victory over all things because death can't separate you from Christ. Life doesn't make you more victorious in Christ. 
So it doesn't matter. Life or death, it doesn't matter. What I have is the same. Right? And in a sense, life and death serve me. Why? Because whether it's life or whether it's death, all these things are going to conform me to the image of Christ. Tribulation is going to conform me to the image of Christ. So tribulation serves me. Distress serves me. Why? How? Because all these things are mine in Christ. In other words, all these things work to conform me to Christ's image because my God is sovereign over all of them. And he doesn't waste anything. So when distress comes your way, that distress serves you. How? By potentially taking you to the depths of despair. And what good is that? How is that serving you? Because it makes you rely more on your God. It serves you. You don't serve it. So how are these things to be understood and applied specifically within our passage? The way that Christ is God's is the same way that the church is Christ's. Look at verse 23. You are Christ's. Do you see that? And Christ is God's. How is Christ God's? I thought Christ was God. Is that a little confusing? It should at least initially be somewhat confusing if we are honest. How does Christ belong to God? Is he not God? Seems like two different people, right? And that's probably where you'd become more Jehovah's Witness in this sense, right? Because I do not believe that Jesus is God, but two separate beings. But that's not how we understand it because we know that's false. So how do we properly understand it? Maybe it's in reference to power and authority. Think of it this way. God has put power and authority over Christ. Christ has power and authority over the church. And so you have power and authority over all things. What do you think about that? I'm going to say it again. Try to get you excited. Okay? God has power and authority over Christ. Christ has power and authority over the church. And you have power and authority over all things. That is Pentecostal theology to a T. Actually. Because you control all those things. But that's actually not what's being said. That's incorrect. It's in terms of service. Not in terms of authority. It's in terms of economy. And economy means how things are organized within an operation. I have said before, but it's been some time, how we're to best understand the Trinity. And the best way we understand the Trinity is between what is known as the ontological Trinity, that is the way that it exists and the way the persons exist, and the economic Trinity, that is the way the Trinity functions among one another. The ontological Trinity references being in nature, and there is no distinction of being or nature within the Trinity, right? Like, God the Father is just as much God as the Son, correct? And the Son is just as much God as the Holy Spirit, correct? So, that is the ontological trinity. That is, in being or nature, they are all the same. But, so far as the economy of the trinity is concerned, they have different roles. And those roles are not subservient roles, but they are a role of equality. They simply serve a different function. It doesn't make them lesser, right? Okay, so 
The son has his function, his role. The spirit has his function and his role. The father has his function and his role, but they are all equally God, right? The same can be said of humanity. A man and a woman are equal in being, in essence, yes? But a man and a woman are made different with different roles, correct? That's the economy of humanity, okay? Not the ontological nature of humanity, okay? We're not talking about being or essence. We're talking about the way they function. So in that way, we can say that the son serves the father, which is why Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly serves the father's will because that is his role, it doesn't mean that the father is greater than the son. He's just simply fulfilling his role as the son of God. The will of God is all the same. What the father wants, the son wants, the spirit wants. They all want the same thing. They don't have different wills. They want the same thing, right? How does all this work together? Sorry, that was a little side note. So... How does this work? Well, the son then submits to the father. That is, he belongs to the father. He is in the father. Or it might say, Christ is God's. In this way, he submits to the father. He serves him. And you are Christ's. And in that way, we serve him. We submit to him, right? And in that same way, all these things then serve us. All things are yours. All these things serve you. You don't serve them. What things did he list? Let no one boast in men. Why? Because whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas, stop, they serve you. You do not serve them. They serve you. All right? You do not belong to them. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. Wrong. They belong to you. So do not boast in men. They belong to you. You don't belong to them. So your perspective is wrong. Right? Your perspective is wrong. Or the world, the world. Yeah, that belongs to you too. It serves you. How does the world serve you? Because it belongs to your God. And he's going to make sure that this world serves you and what does it mean by serving? I think we need to understand that in a more well-rounded theology, understanding that when the world serves us, it means not that it is we are in dominion over it and it will do whatever we say, but instead it serves you becoming more like Christ. That when anything happens in this world, no matter what it is, whether physical, emotional, relational, whatever it may be, it serves you. You do not serve it. All these things belong to you. Now, specifically, what this means is, for them, so then, why are you boasting in them? You don't belong to them. They belong to you. Do you boast in things that belong to you so as to elevate yourself? He's saying none of this makes sense. So don't boast in men. Now, they were seeing themselves as belonging to or serving famous individuals for their own pride's sake, right? I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Cephas. But we need to keep in mind that they are servants of God. 
servants of Christ, servants of Christ's church, and you are that church. They serve you. So that helps us to put these men in proper perspective, right? When your heart is filled with jealousy and selfish ambition, you end up skewing the economy of the things of the world. You don't know who serves what. And everything gets messed up. And we lose proper perspective. Last bit of commentary I'll make here is in this whole idea of do not boast in men. We very much live in a Christian culture where we like to boast in men. Our current Christian culture very much likes to boast in men, whether we admit it or not. Um, some of this, just our general culture, can admit this just in terms of follows, likes, shares, views, viral videos, right? Is that people like this acclaim, and you like being part of that acclaim, you shared it, why? Because other people were, and you want to be part of what's going on. Right? You want to be part of all this stuff that's going to go by in an instant, by the way. And people are going to forget about it. But moving into the Christian and theological world, because that's actually what's being targeted here by Paul. Moving into the theological world, we very much like to boast in men. We like to boast in those people who we think got it the most right and say, I belong to them. I belong to their way of doing things, right? This is promoted, unfortunately, not saying that all these things are incorrect, but this is promoted, unfortunately, in these things such as uh, the over and over conference, and people who are invited to speak at the conferences are the ones who have the best-selling books or the most YouTube videos or something that went viral. And why do you want to have them at your conference? We want to have them at our conference because that's what will draw the crowd in. Why? Because they have a following. You draw on the connection here? Does it mean that we never follow people who have good thoughts or ideas? No, that's not what's being said. Is he saying don't follow Paul then? He specifically will later say... Follow me as I follow Christ. So understand what's being said and what's not being said, okay? Boasting in these things is different than taking example of these things. It's very different. Can you make the distinction? Boasting is different than finding something as an example. So the church should not be a platform for popularity contest. Would you agree? Have you ever seen popularity contest within the context of the church? Yeah. If you haven't seen it, your eyes haven't been open. The church is a fantastic place to have popularity contests. But we should not participate in that game. This is not about popularity contests. This is not who has the most knowledge, right? This is not seeking out someone who has lots of YouTube likes, shares, or best-selling books. Normally, normally, the things that have the most views and likes and shares and purchases are the things that the world grabs onto. And it's in a sense like the masses following Jesus who later turned away. So we just need to be very careful. We need to be very careful that just because something is popular or a company sells a certain thing 
that we jump on it. Remember, these businesses are looking to make money to get sales, right? To get views because they get paid by commercial. Okay? You just have to keep that in mind. We live in a consumer world, consumer society. And we're not playing the game of popularity. I, I just want to make mention of a few thoughts that Carl Truman has spoken regarding this. He says, we invest power and authority in specific individuals who are even outside of their sphere of competence. You're applying this to the political world, probably, because you have people like actors and people who are famous speaking about politics, for example. Um, this also happens within the church, you know. But then also, there are aspirations of ministry that are unlike those that are actually going to be experienced by those in ministry. Set up platforms, and they say pastors can have a great platform. And then when your church is growing, you can get a bigger platform and a bigger platform because the whole point is platform. Why? To have a bigger platform, of course. The aspiration is your platform. The aspiration should not be for name and acclaim. That is how the world works, but we need to fight against it. Does it mean that everyone who has a platform is wrong in having that platform? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to be careful to not boast in men. I think we need to be very careful, well, because Scripture says so. I think we need to be careful to not be wise in our own estimation because Scripture says so. So there are lots of warnings and directions here, aren't there? that we need to gain proper perspective on who these people are, that they are serving you, right? They belong to you, and you need to treat them as such. But they are also servants of God, and that's what he gets into next week. Look at the beginning of chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, servants of Christ, stewards of God's mysteries. So while they, ser they are servants of God, and they serve you because they serve God, it doesn't mean then you can discredit them and disrespect them. What it actually means is, so you need to honor them appropriately, right? So God desires most of all that his people be humble and not wise in their own sight and their own estimation, but instead that we might become fools, that we might be on the path to wisdom. And then he also desires that his people might have proper perspective, that we might see specifically preachers and teachers, but then also all things with the eyes that they serve us for our sake of maturity in Christ rather than us serving them. And that proper perspective helps us to better answer the question, how am I to live in light of this reality? All right? All right, well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the time in your word today and uh, powerful truths uh, in your word and so much application from these realities. And I pray that you would help us to sift through them properly. Uh, there are some gray area uh, things that, that we need to sift through and we need to check ourselves and just make sure that we are not considering ourselves as wise in our own sight, that we're making sure to consider ourselves as fools, that we might pursue wisdom and godliness. Pray that you would help us to gain proper perspective specifically of those who preach the word and are your servants but then also of all things. No matter what comes our way, we need to make sure and view those things properly as those who belong to Christ, as Christ belongs to you, 
And as we know that all things serve for the sake of us growing in maturity in Christ. So give us that help and perspective today. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.